Join us now on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. Welcome to another week's worth of The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel. The news from the world of collecting coming up next. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about one of the most recognized names of collectors anywhere, anytime. We're going to be talking about Ripley, as in Ripley's Believe It or Not, his collection and how that started coming up in the interview segment. And then our friend Heather Gallegos will start a series of stories for us built around roadside attractions and how they're related to collecting, starting one or boosting one. You won't want to miss that. It's been clean up, clean out time here at our house, and as a collector, I have a huge problem with letting things go. So there's been a lot of bargaining going on because my wife is not somebody that hangs on to things. She gets rid of them, and I'm the complete opposite. So while I had to sacrifice a good bit of my uh, baseball card collection, um, I saved my record albums. And the phrase, well, once it's gone, it's gone, has been repeated around here a lot lately. I guess that's spring cleaning at the Nickel House, which, since we live in Michigan, spring starts in July. <laughs> anyway, on with the news. This is a story out of Bristol in the United Kingdom about the world's biggest Simpsons collection. A Bristol man believes that he has the biggest collection of Simpsons memorabilia in the world. Glenn Williams has more than 30,000 items linked to the popular cartoon TV series, and they are currently at his home in a neighborhood called Patchway. He's a 42-year-old courier, and I think that's a mailman in the UK. Only his close friends and family have ever seen his collection, but he thinks there's enough interest in the bright yellow characters to open his collection up to the public. So he is investigating the possibility of putting his collection on display, which he says he has spent 50,000 British pounds, which is close to 100,000 U.S. dollars, on his collection. He adds three items a week and spends about $100 a week on adding to his collections. And he sums up why I think all of us collect. The Simpsons appeal to the child in all of us, I think, is the primary colors the bright yellow. According to the Guinness World Records book, the largest collection of Simpsons memorabilia belongs to a man in Australia. His name is Cameron Gibbs, and he lives in Sky, Victoria, Australia. So, um, lots of Simpsons collectors. And funny thing is, I was really looking for Simpsons collectors to do a whole show on that, and none of these guys are on the web, which is weird. I'm a huge fan of The Simpsons. I've seen every episode at least ten times and know a lot of it by heart. I think it's, without a doubt, the most clever program in the history of television. Just my opinion. This is a story from Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, Florence, Arizona. If you're looking for references in collecting, you're going to want to look up this website address, www.pinal. C-O-U-N-T-Y-A-Z dot gov. www.penalcountyarizona.gov. 
they have converted a library full of books about crafts and collecting to their website. 740 books, magazines, and links, and videos on 140 different hobby and collecting topics from this library located in Florence, Arizona. The website again, www.pinalcountaz.gov, penaltcountyarizona.gov. A huge library full of references on collecting available there. Next story from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pedal car hobbies. We've had pedal car hobbyists on the show before. And this man's name is Gary Luther, and his entry into the realm of collecting children's riding toys began with an unfortunate event that today, he says, ended up being the best thing that ever happened to him. The best thing, according to Gary Luther, was that he got laid off of his job at Westinghouse 13 years ago. So rather than take another job, he converted a hobby of children's toys into a full-time job. And so he now collects, restores, and sells pedal cars. And not just pedal cars, but it's all sorts of child-sized vehicles that include trains, animal-shaped vehicles, fire trucks, a sled shaped like an airplane, a covered wagon. Boy, that sounds cool. And many others. Gary Luther has had some of the pedal cars and bikes restored to their former pristine beauty. He keeps most of them, but he sells a few. He's even taken riding toys from a Tom McCann shoe store. Remember that uh, when we were kids, we all went in there and got those. A train from a Tom McCann store. So that's kind of a nice story. He didn't want to take another job commuting back and forth to Pittsburgh. So he converted his love of pull toys, or uh, sorry, riding toys, into a job. Now then, Transformers, possibly the most expensive bad movie ever made. This is a $400 million movie that the early reviews say is terrible. And I was too late in life to be in on tran- the Transformer toy craze, so I don't really get it. But um, apparently the kids who grew up in the 80s are the adults now who grew up in the 80s were all about Transformers. They've made this second movie, and uh, on Drudge they were saying it was the worst-reviewed, most expensive movie ever. But it has not discouraged a guy whose name is Sennett Pruitt from his love and obsession with Transformers. He's a grad student, uh, and he takes a break from typing his thesis and plays with Transformers. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen is the sequel to the 2007 blockbuster, i got to put that in quotes, Transformers, and it officially has opened in theaters, as I mentioned. When defending his hobby, you can almost imagine the mild-mannered Pruitt who owns 600 Transformers action figures converting into a defender of the toy robot cause. So, even though it's supposed to be not a very good show, People are still nuts about collecting their Transformers. And that was a story from the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Okay, that's enough from the news of the world of collecting this week. You're not going to want to miss my uh, discussion coming up next with Tim O'Brien, who represents the Ripley Entertainment Company. And then how are we going to convert 
our summer driving vacations into hobby collecting. You won't want to miss Heather Gallegos for that. Coming up next on The Collector's Show, thank you for listening to Web Talk Radio. We're very fortunate this week on The Collector's Show to be joined by Mr. Tim O'Brien, and he is a representative of Ripley Entertainment Company. Now, Ripley is often referred to as that quirky little company that evolved from a cartoon, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Today, Ripley Entertainment is a global company that operates attractions in 12 countries. They have 74 businesses in those 12 countries. They sell books. They have licensing deals for everything from Believe It or Not Toys and Games to a deal with Paramount Pictures for a major film that's going to be based on the life of Robert Ripley. The strip or the cartoon is now in its 90th year and it is featured in nearly 200 newspapers in 42 countries in 17 languages. And Tim O'Brien, welcome to The Collector Show. Now, we said a minute ago that the strip, and I, I hesitate to call it a cartoon because it really wasn't a cartoon like we think about the Peanuts cartoon. It was um, kind of an interesting artifact about an oddity that Mr. Ripley found. So the question I had is, did he start out by himself collecting these things and then reporting on them, or was it the other way around? that because we don't know whether to call it a cartoon or a comic or a panel. We like to call it a panel a lot of times Mm -hmm. because some stuff is funny, but uh, most of it isn't. So what do you call it? But we call it just a, believe it or not, and as you said, it started on uh, 90 years ago. It was on a cold December day back in 1918 Mm -hmm. when Ripley was a illustrator with the New York Globe newspaper, mm-hmm. Daily Globe, and he was responsible for coming up with this panel, uh, some sort of an illustration every day. Uh-huh. And things were a little slow that cold December night, <laughs> and he he wanted to go out. And he was sitting there trying to come up with something, and all of a sudden he thought, "Well, I'm going to try something different." So he reaches into his drawers, pull out a file called Dubious Athletic Achievement. Uh-huh. And he tried something totally different. He put nine different, believe it or not, as we call them today, but nine different achievements, like a guy running backward from first base to second base, things like that, he, that he had collected in this file over the years, because he always was a quirky one, and he loved this kind of stuff. Put it together, threw it on his editor's desk, walked out, and figured he was going to catch holy hell the next day because right. he did something so different. So creative. That he came to a hero's welcome. Oh, good for him. Uh, that... People that were telegrams, people loved the concept, and thus began Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it didn't run on a daily basis at that time. Mm-hmm. But by mid-1919 and going into 1920, it was running virtually uh, every day. And it was being syndicated to a point to a few publications up in the northeast of the United States. And Ripley himself was 
pretty much responsible for coming up with everything right at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And what he did is he started traveling in the 20s. He made his first trip to the Orient, um, where the, a combination of trip and business and just a lot of fun, because Ripley loved the Asian culture. And he would come back with items uh, in his mind that he would draw. And then he went to South America and came back with some ideas that he would draw. And, you know, people started thinking of it as, hey, you're lying. Yeah. You can't possibly tell us that a shrunken head the size of your fist actually exists. So, So Ripley had to end up going out and bringing stuff back just to prove to people that he wasn't lying. And I think that's the start of where he started his own collection and why I think that um, the story about Robert Ripley fits in so so perfectly for this show. And one of the things I was curious about, you know, was um, when he collected a shrunken head, for example, how did he display it? Did he just keep it at home in a shoebox? Or uh, when did he start making these things available? Was it to uh, counter his critics who said he was less than truthful? He had them there uh, on his desk. He had them at his home. And the big thing here was the fact that Ripley didn't really show. He didn't really display anything in an actual exhibition until 1933. Okay. So all all through the 20s and into the 30s, he had all this stuff at his home. Mm-hmm. He had stuff on his mantles. He had things in his office. He had things. He also had a room at the New York Athletic Club where he stayed, and he just had this stuff everywhere. And it was just it was just laying there. He didn't treat it as any special. He was not an archivist. Okay, yeah, that's interesting because we've had guests on the show before whose spouses, whether male or female, have insisted that they you know find a place for their collection because it's taken over the house and so um from 1918 to 1933 before he started displaying now tell us about the evolution of uh reporter um hunter to that first display in 1933 in san francisco in the late uh 09 08 07 that era up until 1913, Ripley was a strict illustrator right. uh, for the newspapers out there. He was in the sports department. You know, back then they didn't have photography. No. So they had to have illustrations to, to add graphics to the pages. And he came across country in 1914 to New York really to pursue two dreams. One was to be an illustrator big time, and the other one was to play professional baseball. Oh, boy. Well, that's... He, he, he loved sports, and he played a lot of semi-pro sandlot ball in California. Lofty ambitions. Yes. And he tried out for the New York Giants in the spring of 1914. Right. And actually made the team. Oh, great. And so he must have been pretty good. In his first, and he was pitching in his first professional game, and a line drive came back, smashed his pitching arm, and oh. broke it. Oh, dear. And so it was back to the proverbial drawing board because he couldn't draw or he couldn't pitch anymore. Right. And he, lucky for us, or we might not be sitting here talking today. No. Lucky for us, he went back and kind of dropped the idea of playing professional ball, but 
through the 20s and the 30s and into the 40s, he became friends with people like Babe Ruth mm-hmm. and all the major players of that day, and he even had a uh, charity baseball team in New York City with a lot of the professionals, and Babe Ruth pitched for it. And the whole concept of man about town really came true with Ripley because he was on the A-list, he became a very big celebrity, mm-hmm. and he kept drawing, though. That was the interesting thing. Is a lot of time he had researchers, he had people to help him, and he kept drawing. He just kept drawing. He couldn't stop drawing. Now, was he so, formally, sorry, was he formally trained as an artist? No, no formality at all. Huh. He, he actually sold his first cartoon strip when he was uh, uh, like eight or nine oh, wow. to uh, the New Yorker magazine. And he was just always a very good illustrator. Uh, he was self-taught. He never went to art school. He left home early out of California and went up to San Francisco to uh, to work to send money back home because his father died when he was 14. Oh. And he had to help support the family, and he was able to get a full-time job up there. And so through the, you know, into the 20s and early 30s, he was becoming quite, quite famous because of his cartoon. In 1929, he joined the William Randolph Hearst, Hearst Syndicate. Sure. And they started, um, started selling his cartoons and starting to get them published all over the world. And that's what really started it. He was very popular in the 20s. Mm-hmm. But in the late 20s, when he became a member of the Hearst Syndicate, by mid-30s, he was in over 350 newspapers worldwide. Wow. And, and so people knew him everywhere. And, and he, he, wrote, he put his first book out in 1929. Um, and that became very popular and ended up selling about 500,000 copies during wow. the Congress. I was thinking when you were talking about the first exhibition being in 1933, my immediate thought was, man, what a terrible time to go into business. It's about like starting one up these days, but I think it proves that if you have a creative idea that people are interested in, it doesn't really matter um, if the economy is in, is in rotten shape or not. And what a, and you know, not to, I don't mean this as a, to be funny as a pun, but it was a fortunate break for all of us, you know, that he was taken out of his baseball career early on because like you say it was was. Uh, that's what i said it you know it forced him back to his drawing board and his first exhibition in 1933 was actually a six-month exhibition at the chicago world exposition oh cool world's fair and he a big he was in a big tent and he had about half of the tent with his collections from around the world Mm -hmm. that for people to look at and then the other side was a traditional sideshow with sword swallowers, fire eaters, the one-legged man, the, uh, the lobster boy, all this kind of stuff. So people would pay to get in, and they could see this uh, passive display of oddities from around the world. And then you went into the other portion of the tent and saw this bizarre show. Mm-hmm. And the people uh, that were running the event uh, made him even the third day in made him bring cops and nurses in because people were passing out from seeing this stuff. No kidding. They needed, they needed nurse attention, so they had cops over in the corner just to uh, 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 take care of the people who were so shocked and amazed at everything. 
Now, help me understand if um, people were really shocked, and if so, by what? Or was this just um, a promotional idea? Because I can remember from the movie trailers in the 50s and 60s that I, I watched sometimes, they there were offers in the trailers. Um, oh, I remember one called The Screaming Skull where they offered a free funeral <laughs> if you were scared to death. <laughs> but it was such a bad movie. Um, no one was... No one was scared to death by that, but um, people lost consciousness from what they saw. Is that true? People weren't used to the weirdness that we are today. Okay. You know, we, we kind of laugh at it, but people actually at those days would, would walk in. I would venture to say nine out of ten of them had never seen a sword swallower. Probably not. Nine out of ten of them had probably never seen anything weirder than the maybe the fat lady that drank sodas down at the drugstore. Right. So when they saw this stuff for the very first time, you know, there were no photos in the papers, so people hadn't seen this stuff. No TV, no internet to see this stuff. So this was the introduction for a lot of people on the weird. And today we're so curious, nothing nothing can bother us most of the time. Well, we're so jaded. Yeah. It really takes us, especially at Ripley's, it really takes us a lot to get excited about a new item that we find. It's so weird and bizarre. And we're going to... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, but back in those days, they had no, they had nothing to base this on. And that's, that was a fun part of watching the development of the Ripley brand through the years. That's one of the things, too, that we're going to get into is um, how our listeners can actually go and participate at um, a Ripley attraction for... Uh, lack of a better word, what with it being summertime. Um, but let's stay with the, uh, the earlier history of, of Ripley for now. This, um, the World's Fair in Chicago in 1933, which I believe the, the ice cream cone was also first introduced at that, at that fair. And I think what you say is absolutely right. We, we see so much graphic violence and so forth on television these days, and we've got hundreds of channels, we forget how uh, innocent the population was in those days. Most people, I don't think, even had radios in the 30s. So, uh, Ripley was a pioneer on, on radio as well. Just about that time, he was getting his first show, and he ended up being a regular on a weekly radio show for 14 years. Now, now, and people got to know him through radio, his Believe It or Not, uh, on the radio. And he pioneered a whole bunch of it. He was the first one to pioneer a live broadcast from Europe into the United States. He was the first one to do a ship-to-shore live radio program. He actually went to the bottom of the shark tank at Marineland in Florida at that time and had a big diving helmet on and broadcast from the bottom of the water in the swimming pool. Now, see, that would be even pretty cool today. <laughs> the bottom of the shark tank and broadcast live i'd i'd watch that well, For, maybe you could do that no maybe yeah that. I, I, I collect shark bites maybe not yeah and ripley by 1936 was so well known thanks to radio and thanks to the movie trailers, like they used to have the old movie tone uh, newsreels. Oh, yeah. Uh, before they would show cartoons even on a Saturday feature, 
they would show maybe 10, 15 minutes of these movie tone. Uh, it was kind of like an update of what's been going on. And Ripley was in a lot of those. As he was coming back from his voyages, people would see this stuff. So he got to very much uh, be in front of the public, plus his radio, plus he was doing lectures, plus he was doing this other stuff. And by in 1936, the National Newspaper Association had a reader's poll to find out who readers felt was a most popular American. Mm-hmm. And Ripley won. Get out. That's so cool. Even more so than ball players or the president of the United States. Yeah, Roosevelt came in second. Gosh. And he also became, a year later, he became the first illustrator who made a million dollars. Oh, that's... Before Disney. Oh, that's... See, nobody knows, or I won't say nobody knows, but these are things that I didn't know about his pioneering in, in radio or that popular... He really was a rock star. In fact, the, a lot of the rules and regulations for the U.S. Postal System were put in order because of him. He was getting like 150,000 pieces of mail. Oh, wow. And a lot of the times it just said, rip, New York City. <laughs> and he got it. We've had a lot of the stuff in, his, uh, in the archives uh, that just addressed Ripley, New York City. Oh, man. Or something like that. Or rip. And some people were even drawing things like a shrunken head on the front of the envelope. And it's in his archives that, and postmarked. So pe- people were were sending all kinds of weird stuff because they had no idea. They knew he was in New York City, but no no address. And through the years, he became uh, uh, quite a problem for the U.S. Postal Service. So that's when they started saying, you need to have the stamp up in the right-hand corner. You need to give a full address for it to be delivered. Well, that really helps me get my head around how Robert Ripley became such a fixture in in American popular culture. Let's talk about shrunken heads, because it, when we go to the website, there's a very prominent photo of him with a shrunken head. Now, was that something that just struck his fancy that he collected, or it struck the public's fancy? How did the whole shrunken head thing get going? Shrunken head is also an iconic feature for uh, for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Now, you know, people think of Ripley's Believe It or Not, they think of either two-headed cows or shrunken head. Right. And this was this was part of his travels uh, in the twenties when he went down to South America, Central America. He went to Ecuador and had discovered that the Havaro Indian tribes down there actually shrunk heads. Now, a lot of a lot of cannibal tribes and a lot of other tribes would cut cut heads off of people. But to this day, nobody knows anybody else other than the Havaro Indians who actually shrunk the heads. And these are live human heads. Oh, man. And what they would do is during battle, they would take the heads off. They would take them back to the, uh, the camp, shrink them, put them on a stick, and basically use them as uh, intimidation devices. Sure. I'd you be intimidated. Anybody who you could do that to your head. Got my buddy's head on a stick. <laughs> yeah, right. No thanks. They, they came up with a whole uh, a whole way of doing it, and it wasn't just being brutal. It was a very spiritual uh, process for them. Sometimes it would take three, four days, and they really respected the spirit in a human body, and as they were, you know, shrinking your head. But they also would sew your lips shut because they felt that your soul could only as 
didn't want souls to be wasted, and they didn't want to screw around maybe with hurting a soul. Uh-huh. So they would sew the lips shut on the men because they didn't want the soul to escape. Now, the few women that we have in our collection didn't have their lips sewn shut because the Havaros didn't believe that women had souls. Wow. And that's how you can tell a male from a female shrunken head. The women's mouths are not sewn shut. Right. Oh, wow. And so we have, a, we have the largest collection in the world now. Ripley brought them back, and we have acquired quite a few uh, through the years. We have a collection of about 150 now. And that's our, that's our iconic exhibit in each of our museums. We have at least one or two in each of our museums. And in our New York City Museum, we have a display of 24 of them in a room just for the shrunken heads. And we've got some great uh, footage uh, of the Havaro Indian people shrinking ahead. And it's pretty cool. It sounds pretty cool. And I know that the New York uh, facility for the Ripley Collection is called the Auditorium, and it's spelled O-D-D. Isn't that right? Yeah, very clever stuff. Ripley caught his first exhibit in 1933, the Auditorium. And we kind of got away from it through the years, but, you know, we own that. We don't own the word museum. No. So what we're doing is as we're renovating, as we're building new facilities, we're tacking on the name Auditorium instead of museum. So it's a, believe it or not, Auditorium of New York City, of San Antonio. And later in the interview, we're going to talk about how you can visit one of these odd atoriums on your summer vacation, which, uh, of course, it's July coming up, and it will be summer vacation season for most of us. It certainly will be for me. Now, the other iconic item that you mentioned, the two-headed cow, I actually remember seeing, and I don't know if it was a Ripley display, because I I think I was seven years old, but I saw a two-headed cow at the Brazoria County Fair in Angleton, Texas, probably in the late 1960s. Do you think it was the same one, or were there others? How did that get going? Uh, that, was, uh, that would not have been uh, Ripley, because uh, Ripley died in 49. Okay. And, uh, we did not have a traveling exhibit after after he died. I think they did a couple in, in the 50s, but... From about sixty on, we didn't have, we didn't travel, and we nor do we now. We do not take stuff to various locations. But two-headed cows were always around. Uh, Barnum himself, in the mid eighteen hundreds, had a lot of two-headed animals, and Ripley, for some reason, found it to be uh, 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 terribly exciting to see uh, a, uh, uh, an oddity that nature created herself. And so he had them taxidermied, and he always made sure that they were real because uh, taxidermists proved, well, Barnum proved that taxidermists could have a rice <laughs> and creating legs coming out of ears. Uh, uh, Ripley himself traveled extensively uh, to make sure that what he was getting was a real thing. And, of course, today when we get, we, had, we got a two-headed, or excuse me, a two-trunked elephant, the only one that's ever been discovered. Uh, it, it had been poached in Africa off, off of a game preserve, and we were able to acquire it after it had been uh, taxidermied. And so before we bought it, if you can imagine, it was, it was quite expensive. And 
before we acquired it, we wanted to make sure it was a real deal. So we had the DNA testing uh, oh. side on this one. So you, first of all, you find out if that extra trunk is real, and then if it is real, does it match the rest of the DNA of the elephant? That's why we. That's why we make sure things today are genuine. Well, there weren't and, DNA tests, you know, in those days. I can even remember in the '80s. Speaking of Barnum, um, he had a unicorn, and I think that they had just hot glued a, a horn onto a pony. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the PG mermaid. Yes, which was a monkey's head on a fish body. Yeah, and he, Byron was amazing. He really was, and Ripley is often associated with Barnum, but really not much because Barnum, you know, he said there's a sucker born every minute. Yes, uh, and, but on the other hand, Ripley always made sure that everything was real. Everything yes. was genuine. And Ripley's didn't come up saying, believe it or not, like, is it true or is it real? Mm-hmm. Is it fake? Is it real? What he came up with, he says, this is real and genuine, and you can believe it or not. We have taken up the whole half hour of the interview segment, and I haven't got to most of my questions yet, Tim. I wonder if you would be willing to come back and be with us again next week. Wonderful. Well, good. And we've got uh, another week of Ripley's Believe It or Not with Tim O'Brien. So I'm going to thank Mr. O'Brien for being on The Collector's Show this week and prepare to welcome him back next week on The Collector's Show. You'll want to tune in for that and tell your friends. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the Found Collectible of the Week with Heather Gallegos. Coming up next on The Collector Show, I'm Harold Nichol. Well, it's summertime, and we've been talking about Ripley and some of the things that you can encounter when visiting the many Ripley sites around the U.S. And so apropos of that, our good friend Heather Gallegos has an excellent addition to the Collector's Show, Found Collectible of the Week. And Heather, what have you got for us? Hi, Harold. Hello. Hello. This week, I decided we're going to kick off a series similar to what we did uh, back at St. Patrick's Day. We did that like three-part series on all things that were Irish. I do remember. All right. Well, this time I was kind of, you know, putting my thinking cap on and came up with an idea of uh, looking at roadside attractions across the U.S. Oh, fun. Yeah. So I decided we're going to do a nine-part series. We'll take It will take us right through the summertime. Oh, cool. And we'll look at the uh, nine regions of the U.S. Okay. So, so, sorry, nine separate regions of the country. Mm-hmm. Roadside attractions. Right. So if we have any, like, geography buffs out there, I'm sure they already know the nine regions. But for those of us who maybe aren't so inclined... Guys like me. Yeah, okay. I I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, but... But anyway. It it almost goes without saying. (laughs) The dumbest guy I know is me. So, uh... That is so not true. It's, uh... What are the nine regions, and which one are we going to talk about first? Well, the nine regions would be New England, then we have our mid-Atlantic states, then we go into the Midwest, which would one portion of that would be the East, North, Central, Mm -hmm. places like where you and I live in Michigan, in that area. 
Then we also have another part of the Midwest called the West North Central, more like the Dakotas, Missouri areas in there. Then we'll do the South Atlantic, which would include like D.C., Virginia, the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. Then we'll go into the South, your favorite. Oh, sure. We'll start, <laughs> we'll start with East, South, Central, you know, Tennessee, um, that, um, Alabama, that mm-hmm. region. And then we'll go into West, South, Central. Texas will be rate number one on that one. Of course. And, and then we'll go to the West, the Mountain States with Idaho, Utah, New Mexico, and then we'll finish it up with the Pacific. So it's a, a big country, lots to see and do. That's right. Particularly in the summertime. And um, mm-hmm. I know people may be listening and saying, well, you know, it sounds like it'll be interesting. But what can roadside attractions in nine different parts of the U.S., what can that have to do with collecting? Well, it's really funny. As I was researching this topic, um, I found a lot of things, like similar to that what we talked about already. If you think back to um, our Pez show, sure. I found a place that ha- houses Pez, or back to our Snoopy show, places that house um, cartoon characters. Right. Um, I just found a lot of different things. Even I know one that you did, you did the sand collector oh, yeah. this year. I found a desert <sighs> in the New England region. Yeah. So the, the con- so the connection is for collectors is you're out maybe trying to plan something or somewhere to go. Right. A lot of these things will relate to different kinds of collectibles. And so why not combine your love of collecting, whether it's sand or Pez, <laughs> with a summer vacation? Absolutely. And some of the, I mean, depending on what region you're in, this could be like, you know, a day trip. It doesn't really have to be a full vacation. It, it right. could be. You know, I've always wanted to do that, kind of drive across the U.S. and make it into, like, a big vacation. Mm-hmm. You know, you could plan it that way, so it could be a longer vacation. But like I said, it really could just be, you know, maybe it's something that's in your backyard. We may uncover something even like that. So but, who knows what we'll uncover. Well, what do you have picked for us first out of nine? Well, I thought we would start with Maine. Okay. We'd work our way right down, okay? So we'll start with Maine. Perfect. In a few cities that your your listeners may want to visit. The first one would be Yarmouth, Maine. And they have Ursa, the world's largest revolving and rotating globe. She was built in July of 1998. She's actually 41 feet and one and a half inches in diameter. Like globe, like planet Earth globe. Yeah, like the whole globe. And she's actually tilted on the same, like, degree that the earth that the earth is i mean this thing is is a, an exact replica oh wow when they when they started building her she was a little off so the ceo of the company is um a map making company he made them stop and take it apart and rebuild it so wow. it is an exact replica and the name eartha yeah <laughs> like eartha kit like the late eartha kit that's right i get it yeah, so you can go see her. She's open daily from 9.30 to 6, or 6 p.m. And, of course, Mother Earth would have a female name. That's correct. I'm, I am so, I am You're right there it. with you. You are right on it. Okay. I'm sure there's a gift shop so people can collect souvenirs while they're there. Um, and the admission, everybody's favorite, it's free. Oh, everybody likes I free. I know. And for people who collect maps, you know, we've talked about cartography on the show before. Yeah. There you go. Perfect for in that way too. cartographers. Are, mm-hmm. Then there's also Bangor, Maine. They have the Paul Bunyan statue and birthplace. And I've actually seen this with my own eyes. And it is quite a sight to behold. Cool. The statue itself is 31 feet high, and it weighs over 3,700 pounds. 
and it's open every day during the daylight hours. It's basically like a little park, mm-hmm. and again, admission free. Oh man! And there's a gift shop. So, um, in terms of tall tales, Paul Bunyan, of course, is huge. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> and now his uh, he had a pet ox, right? Now, is there a pet ox statue, or do we have to go somewhere else for that? I think you're going to have to go someplace else, because this is just Paul with his, you know, axe yeah. and his pick. Okay. It's just Paul. Was it, was his ox blue or babe? Babe. Babe. His, it was a blue ox named it Babe. Was a blue ox. Yeah. <laughs> you were close. I, I was right there. And he I carved was, it. I at the door. <laughs> he carved it with his pick and his axe. There you go. See, wow, you know more about this than I Well, I know, don't ask me anything useful. Okay, well, uh, trivia. We'll stick with that. Yeah, we'll stick with nonsense. There's just one more attraction in Maine. I mean, there's there's so many things to look at, and actually your listeners, if they really want to plan a vacation, there's a couple of, of sources that they're really going to want to check out. All right. And the, the first one is RoadsideAmerica, all one word, dot com. Mm-hmm. And basically, they tout themselves to be the online guide to the offbeat tourist attractions. Yes. It's amazing. You can put your state in. You can lo- um, localize it by cities. Or you can put it in for specific attractions that you're looking for. So their search engine, their basic search engine, is you know pretty advanced yeah. in getting you to what you want to find. That sounds like and fun. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of stuff out there for each state. I did very general searches and mm-hmm. came up with hundreds of results. When uh, when I started thinking about the summer and themes for the show that related to summer, I remember when we were kids. We I grew up in Texas as people who've listened know, and there was always a place in Texas called Stuckey's, mm. and um, they, they had pecan logs, and it was, um, I don't want to say it was a roadside attraction by itself, but um, there'd be signs like, you know, just nine more miles to the next Stuckey's. It's like they were they were ubiquitous, right? They were just everywhere. Right. And so I kind of went looking for those online, and there still are a few, but they're, uh, they're not what they were when I was a kid in the 60s. Um. Now tell me, no, doggone it. Now tell me that at some point during the summer we're going to get to the world's biggest ball of twine. Oh sure, I didn't find it yet. Okay, we we will get there. Must I think where is it in the south? Isn't it, or is it out in the west? I think it's out in the west, right? I don't know. I think it is. I've heard of it, and uh, I remember in that movie Vacation they talked about the world's second biggest ball of twine. So I figure, well, where's the big one? Yeah, where's the biggest? I did find one of those, and that that's kind of interesting, too. But I think we have to get to Massachusetts before we talk about that. Okay. And really, I'll just finish up on Maine. There's also a Freeport, Maine. Oh, sure. And they have a, they have a desert. It's a 44-acre desert, and it has dunes in it. The legend is that um, a glacier that came through in the carving of Maine deposited this sand. And as topsoil was eroded, the sand was uncovered. So there is a desert right there in Maine. You don't really think of the New England states as having their own desert. No. But they do. And it's open May through October. Um, They have 30-minute guided tours. There is a a shop where you can buy souvenirs. Of course there is. Of course. I think that's (laughs) a theme that we're going to find on all these. And there is, though, a charge. There, you know, adults are around eight seventy five, and children are five seventy five. Okay. Well, that's not outrageous. No, it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, you're already in Maine. You might as well do something really, you know, off the beaten track. I would have thought Maine would have something like the world's biggest lobster trap or something well, like I, that. I didn't find that, but 
we'll get to some of those weird things like that. Okay. I think the stranger the better as far as I'm concerned. Now get back to the Now to get back to the desert though. Mm-hmm. It's 44 acres yeah. and they think that this is just glacial activity and on the tour did they tell you I mean what's there to see? Well, it's a bunch of sand and that'll be 875. Right. Yeah, I, d- I didn't really find out the website because I went to visit their actual website and they didn't really have a lot more information than I found on that roadsideamerica.com. So, I, I can't, I mean, I have not taken the tour. I don't know. I'm not really sure what they offer. And, you know, I've never been in Maine, come to think of it. Oh, well, it's time to go. Time it to go. It's really quite beautiful. Put the kids in the station wagon and let's go. And hit the road. Yeah. Now, um, and getting this kind of back to collecting, if you collect mm-hmm. postcards, if you collect sand, like mm-hmm. one of our guests right. did, these kinds of things are perfect for that. Absolutely. And, yeah, you've got it right there. And you can collect uh, maps, like at mm-hmm. the like at Eartha. Right. And, you know, just collect... Or figurines. Or figurines. At Paul Bunyan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or your or picture. T-shirt. Right, T-shirt. Yeah, I, that's what what we don't need at my house is another T-shirt. But yeah, right. those yeah. are the kinds of things. These kinds of attractions really bring it back to the collector's show. You can start a new collection and work it around your your summer driving vacation, or you, right. you can supplement something you're already doing. Absolutely. Well, speaking of something that you may already be doing, if any of your listeners out there collect moose, like figurines or mm-hmm. anything. There is in New Hampshire, in Gorham, New Hampshire, there is a, a store called Strictly Moose. And it's a unique gift shop, and that's all they sell. Everything about moose. And they also provide tours. Moose like Bullwinkle, right? Yeah, like Bullwinkle. Not like for your hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about your hair. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and what's the plural of moose? I, I want to say meese, and I know it's wrong, yeah, but I just can't think be it right. sounds funny. Mooses. Like, I can't say mice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. You could also, while you're in New Hampshire, go down to Hinsdale, um, that's Hinsdale, excuse me, on Northfield Road. Yes. They have a house constructed of license plates. Get out. Really? Um, I'm telling you the truth, my friend. Albert Dusso, he was the owner of an antique and flea market, and he started covering his house in license plates. Albert has passed on, but his family still owns the house, and you can stop and take pictures of it. You know, we've talked a couple of times on the show about people who collect license plates, Mm -hmm. and that some of the most rare license plates in the world, I think one is from Mississippi and another one is from Alaska, but they go for, like, in the thousands of dollars. You probably don't want to take it off of this man's house. No, probably not. You could take pictures. They would be annoyed, and it it would let the wind in. And that would be vandalism. Yeah, and theft. That's not good. But see so many so many tie-ins with these kinds of things to the world of collectibles. Isn't that crazy? Who well, knew? Also asking for the bazaar. Yeah, well, always. Dover, well, of course. In Dover, New Hampshire, there is called the Woodman Institute, and they have a collection of um, taxidermed animals, right. including a four-legged chicken. It's their claim to fame. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that I thought was kind of cool. They also claim to have one of Lincoln's saddles, a saddle that he actually used mm-hmm. to inspect the troops a couple of days before his assassination. Right. That's also on display. Oh, cool. Yeah. They're open Wednesday through Sunday from like 1230 to 430 um, through the months of April and December. 
And all of this <laughs> is kind of cool. And all this is in the state of Maine. This, no, no, we moved on to New Hampshire. Oh, I beg your pardon. Uh, yeah, we've moved on to New Hampshire. For the geologically I, challenged. <laughs> that's okay. I just thought we should probably, you know, I only did about three. Okay. In state. All right. Just to kind of whet your appetite of what's out there. And the rest you can explore and find on your own. That would be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. This is this is going to be a great series. Nine weeks of roadside attractions to expand existing collections, start new ones, and, right. and have more fun than the law should allow. Uh, I, that's really, that's it. Well, you know, when you were talking about, like, the world's largest, yeah. if you travel down to Rhode Island, right. the capital, you can see the world's largest bug. Oh. There's a 59-foot-tall um, termite called Nibbles. <laughs> Nibble, excuse me, Nibbles Woodaway is his actual name, and he appeared in the Dumb and Dumber movie. Oh, geez. Yeah, so that was kind of cool because he's the world's largest. Okay. Hey, can I get you to just back off your phone just a touch? Oh, sure, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Now, okay, so Nibbles the big termite. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do one of the uh, pest control companies, do they sponsor that? Nibbles brought to you by Terminex or anything like that? or is It, it is at... Um, a, a termite shop, and I'm sorry, I don't have the name, Harold. Oh, that's all right. I do have their address. Oh, let's get their that. Their address is uh, 161 O'Connell Street. Okay. So, that was interesting, I thought. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, um, oh, go ahead. No, if you, people who collect insects, who wouldn't, <laughs> no, no butterfly or insect collection would be complete without a photo of the world's biggest termite. The world's largest, yeah. And the name is just so cute. I just thought that was so funny. That is cu- cute. Yeah. And then if your listeners collect, like, Mr. Potato Head, mm-hmm. they have a very specific collection. There is um, a Mr. Potato Head elephant tribute, which stands in front of City Hall in Sipache, Rhode Island, right yeah. off the Highway 44. And uh, it's quite cute. There's a picture of him online. So that was kind of a cool little thing. You know, you get your picture taken with them. If you're a big Mr. Potato Head collector, you could kind of go there and see them. I can still sing the Mr. Potato Head song, but I'm not going to. Oh, that's so sweet. No, I'm just not going to. You could put the Mr. Potato Head things onto real potatoes. Yes, when they first came out, that's what it was, right? That's what we did when we were little. Right. Now, what was the deal with elephants? Did I hear that right? Mr. Potato Head and elephants? It's an elephant tribute. <laughs> so it, instead of like being a brown Mr. Potato Head, yeah. he's a gray Mr. Potato Head. Oh, okay. But he kind of looks a little androgynous because there was kind of female characteristics <laughs> and also some male. It was a little different. <laughs> but there's a picture out there if any of your listeners would like would care to look. Okay. And yeah. uh, there's websites for all of these. A lot of them have websites, but they're not every single one of them. Yeah. But I, like I said, I found these either on Roadside America, or there was also in the October 2004 issue of Budget Travel, mm-hmm. they had a like 59 jaw-dropping roadside attractions, yeah. and they broke it down by regions too. So you could always go there to look for some things as well. That is, sounds like so much fun. Right, and even I'm sure like the tourism board for each one of these states, they would have information on the, you know, the off-beat type attractions, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, just, I think it's really, if you're planning this type of vacation, you're just going to have to do some investigation on where you want to go. Well, and, and a lot of them, I mean, when we were talking to uh, Tim O'Brien from the Ripley uh, Entertainment Company, he said that 
all of their attractions are like two and three hour deals. You wouldn't, you know, spend a week or a day there. And that's kind of the way these things sound is like you'd go see whatever it is and then back on the back in the car. So right. that's um, exactly what it sounded like to me. Like you're just going to go and look at it and maybe take some pictures, check out the souvenir shop, and then it's not. It wouldn't be the final destination, like of your whole trip. Right. No one yeah. would. No one would plan a whole trip to go see the big termite. Although, <laughs> are you there? Hello. Yeah. I thought here. we thought I lost you. Oh, that was a weird noise. Yeah. Um. Now I might plan a trip to go see the world's biggest termite, but you know. Yeah, but that's you. That's and me. You're special. Yeah. <laughs> Very. Now, what's coming up for next week? Okay, well, next week we're going to move on, like I said, to our Mid-Atlantic. So we'll cover New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. All right, so everybody come back for that because you'll want to hear more about that. Now, we're going to have another interview next week with Tim O'Brien from Ripley because we just couldn't fit everything we needed to talk to with him into one segment. So he's... uh, Nice enough to agree to come back and be on again with us next week. So more from the world of Ripley's Believe It or Not and more from Mid-Atlantic Roadside Attractions next week on The Collector Show. Please come back. Thanks for listening. I'm Harold Nickel. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your I'd be rich.